you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. Then I brought back these vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Thus I cleansed from them everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. 
Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to uh, see you here gathered as we end uh, what's been, uh, it feels like an eternity we've been in Ezra and Nehemiah, doesn't it? I reckon if I see that intro video one more time, I'm going to bang my head again. <laughs> it's, it's, there's been a lot gone on, um, and we're going to dive into that in a moment. But can I just, I just want to take the opportunity to call out the women who were organising yesterday's event in particular. Um, Dana and Bianca were leading a team of women who were doing that, and it was epic. I know our house is still full of leftover food, which is a you know, little trickle-on uh, benefit, but it, they came back and were really pumped. If, um, for those of you women who were there, I'm so glad it went well. Uh, for those of you who weren't, the next time they run something like that, make sure you're there, because it was a really uh, encouraging thing, and I know that because it encouraged my wife, and you heard from Claire as well. And also, I just want to highlight, um, before we dive into the text, it's a real, um, I'm excited to have Guy uh, Mason, the lead pastor sitting on, a mo- on the Hill Movement here in the flesh next week. I think it must be three years uh, now that we're a movement of eight churches around different states and all sorts of things going on. It's been much harder to get him here in the flesh. Going to be here in the flesh, in person next week, and um, I'm looking forward to that, as I hope you are too. And then the week after, I'm not looking forward to it all. Yes, I am. It's the beginning of left and right, and um, it's going to be great, isn't it? You think these last weeks we've been looking at uh, and diving into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, a long time before the birth of Jesus, and now for this next series, we, we dive in very much to where we are at right now in the world in which we live. Both of those are really important things, but very, very different. So I hope you're excited by it. I'm excited and fearful. Uh, and um, fearful is the wrong word. Op- fearfully optimistic, you know, is that right? As we get into that. But let's leave that aside. Let's look now at uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. The reading uh, skipped through there. It was, it's, it's quite a chapter. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be diving in and out of the text. So if you've got your phone or a hard copy, helpful perhaps to see where I'm going and to see what's in this wonderful chapter. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning and we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have not abandoned us, that your Holy Spirit is with us. And we pray that now as we, your people, gather together, whether we're at home or online or we're here physically, as we gather together as you tell us to do and as we sit humbly before your word, We believe in faith that you will work by the power of your spirit to build us up, to show us the Lord Jesus, to strengthen us for the task that is ahead of us. Because Lord, we ask it in dependence and faith and confidence in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, um, who likes happy endings? (laughs) Yeah, some of you. So who likes sad endings? Yeah, you're... That's just, that's yeah. Most of us like happy endings, don't we? Like I can think of, for example, the wonderfully happy ending of Robin Hood. You know it. Uh, Robin Hood, the great hero, is bleeding out because his treacherous cousin, the prioress of Kirklees, has cut too much blood. And as he's bleeding out, he drags himself to the window and he shoots the arrow as he's dying. He says, "Bury me there." That's not a happy ending, right? That's a sad ending. We like happy endings. Uh, we want to hear like. All's well that ends well, or, and they live happily ever after, don't we? We want happy endings, especially for our own lives. So as we've journeyed through Ezra and Nehemiah, what's the ending like? Is it happy? Is it sad? Some, some nods? Somewhere in the middle. Well, let's look this morning and find out what the ending is like. 
Now, the context of Nehemiah chapter 13 is Nehemiah chapter 12 and 11 and 10, all the way down. And in those previous chapters, we've seen some real spiritual highs. If you've journeyed with us, you know, but let me recap a few of them. Uh, In chapter 8, the people have, have rebuilt the wall and they have a Bible reading fest and worship fest. Uh, In chapter 9, they repent of their sin for a whole chapter. In chapter 10, they get together and they make a covenant. That is, they make promises to one another and to God that they're going to do better than they have previously. In chapter 12, they rejoice with great joy. That was last week. As they dedicate the temple, remember that the the choir is going around and singing and worshipping and rejoicing, so it's heard far away. This has been some real spiritual highs. And in some ways, I kind of wish that it ended there. Because chapter 13, well, the context of chapter 13 comes in verse 6 of chapter 13. Nehemiah tells us that after his period of time as the governor in Jerusalem and Judea, he's recalled. The king of Babylon goes, okay, I want you back in Babylon. The king of Persia, rather, back in Babylon or back, I need you. Nehemiah leaves. We don't know exactly how long it was, but between one and two years. So Nehemiah is gone. Eventually, he manages to to get permission by the king to come back again, maybe two years later. And Nehemiah chapter 13 ends with what he finds and what he does with what he finds. And what he finds... On his return, just two years after he left, perhaps, is heartbreaking for him on three levels. Let's look at them quickly, the heartbreak. Firstly, the first heartbreak he finds, we read of in chapter 1, sorry, verse 1 to chapter, verse 14, rather verse 1 to 14 of chapter 13. And there's heartbreak here on two levels. Firstly, it centers on this guy called Tobiah, the Ammonite, right? So, If you've gone, you remember Nehemiah, this is not the first time we've met Tobiah. You might remember right back when they were building the wall and this guy gets up and goes, yeah, yeah, if a fox climbs up and it'll fall down. That was Tobiah. Uh, Tobiah is not just an Ammonite, which we're told are people who excluded from God's worship because of historical sins. Tobiah is not just an Ammonite. He's been the ringleader or one of the ringleaders of the attempt to stop the whole project of restoration of God's people. More than that, he's been complicit in attempted murder. He has tried to murder Nehemiah and the people who are building the wall. This Tobiah, right? And Nehemiah gets back from Jerusalem and he discovers, guess what? The high priest has decided to give him his special little warehouse, really, in the temple of God. Now, this is not just a deliberate smack in the face to Nehemiah himself, not just treachery. This is actually sacrilege. It's blasphemy. In the temple of God, this man Tobiah now has a warehouse for his own personal use. And it's worse than that. The the, the warehouse that that Tobiah is given used to be used to store the tithes. That was the the voluntary or the the contributions materially that the people of God would give to the work of God in the temple. And and now where they were stored is now where Tobiah's got his little warehouse and they're not being stored anymore. And we find out in the next verses that, that God's worship in the temple has ceased, kaput, finish. The Levites and the, the ones who were organizing the temple worship, the singers, the whole, the whole group are starving, so they've got to go back to their fields and earn some money. 
That's the first heartbreak that Nehemiah returns to find. The second heartbreak comes in verses 15 to 22. If you've got it open before, if you haven't, I'll tell you what happens. Nehemiah discovers that the Sabbath commandment, that is to keep the, 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 the seventh day holy in, in God's eyes, it was, it, was to, it was to gather and rest. It was a huge, important commandment in the Old Testament law. Nehemiah gets back to discover that they've turned Jerusalem into a marketplace on the Sabbath. The gates are open. There's trade taking place in the CBD. It's all pumping, which sounds good, except it's a direct breach of God's law. In fact, it was the breaking of this law more than perhaps any other thing in the Old Testament, which is why God removed his people in the first place from Israel. So he finds that the, the, the temple has been dishonoured, Tobias in there. He finds that the Sabbath is being willfully flaunted and broken. And perhaps the third and the, or the third and greatest heartbreak maybe comes in verse 23. This is what it says. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So he gets back from Jerusalem and he discovers that there's been some internet dating happening. And a lot of God's people have married people from the surrounding nations who were not just kind of sympathetically towards the God's people of Israel, they were antithetical towards them. And if you've journeyed through Ezra and Nehemiah with us, you know, this is the second time that this has happened. You remember the catastrophic mess that Ezra confronts in 9 and 10 of the book of Ezra. But what seems to have really stirred up Nehemiah this time is verse 24, because it says this, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So these Jewish men have taken non-Jewish wives and their children can't even speak Hebrew. They can't even read the scriptures in their own language. They can speak their mother's language and they can worship the pagan gods of their mothers. They can't even read and understand God's holy word. This is actually a major, major problem. This is existential. The people of God are on the edge of becoming extinct. This is no small thing. Nehemiah is gone for less than two years and he comes back and it seems like all of his effort, all of his prayer, all of his faith, all of the revival that took place has unraveled like a, a ball of wool. The solemn promises that the people of God made to each other and to God have just quickly been forgotten as the people have slipped into compromise with the nations around them once again. That's a heartbreak for Nehemiah. How would you have responded? How would you have responded if, if all of your work over years, all of your faith and your pleading and your fasting and your prayer is so quickly unraveled? How would you have responded if you were a leader if you are a leader, and that describes your ministry area perhaps in the church, or could be in the secular workplace too, you get the feeling, all of this effort, gone. How would you respond? I can tell you how I'd respond. I'd get depressed. Like, what? I'd get angry, depressed, frustrated. Oh, these, you know, oh, I want to bang their heads to, you know, like, how, oh, it's so frustrating. 
Look what Nehemiah does. He doesn't get depressed. He springs into action. This guy's amazing. Like we're not, one of the dangers we have in reading the Bible is constantly seeing heroes and saying, be like Nehemiah, right? Or be like David or be like Daniel. That's actually a superficial reading of the Bible overall. But I look at Nehemiah and go, this guy is incredible. You read chapter 13 through, not just the excerpt we had this morning, and you see what he does on his return. He gets back and he springs into action. I'll give you very quickly what it is. Verse 8 and 9, he goes into Tobiah's warehouse and he just chucks it all out, crashing, splintering furniture. You get the idea. Throws it out onto the street. Uh, he puts reliable men in charge of the tithes, the contribution of God's people. And then he says to the Levites, and come back, let's get the temple operating again. And it is. He speaks to God's people about the Sabbath law and what they are doing in breaking it in verses 17 and 18. And then, typical Nehemiah, he speaks to them about the problem and then he takes action. He bars the gates so that nobody can get in on the Sabbath. He's saying, this is why you should keep the law, but I'm going to make it difficult for you to break it. And I'm going to put my guards on the walls to stop people coming in. Then um, he takes on the Jewish men marrying foreign wives. And if you, if you read that 24, verse 24, you'll see that he says, look, this was Solomon's mistake. Even Solomon, it, it, it hijacked him. Are you going to be better than Solomon? No, stop it. But he knows that um, like disciplining your kids, perhaps, there's only so much that talking can actually do. And so then Nehemiah does some stuff which makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We're told that he gets some of the offenders and he pulls out their hair. And then he beats some of them. He takes very strong action. You can see that in verse 25. Now, that must have hurt those men that had their hair pulled out and were beaten, um, but it would have been much more humiliating for them to be publicly shamed for their actions. That's Nehemiah chapter 13, right? I just gave you a very brief summary. I encourage you to read it for yourself to see all the details that I missed there. That's Nehemiah chapter 13. How does the book of Ezra and Nehemiah end? Remember, it's one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, one story. How does it end? This is how it ends. Nehemiah goes away and he comes back. It's in a mess and he puts things back into shape and the book ends. But you've got to ask, has anything really changed? Nehemiah's gone for a year, two years, and the people revert to what they know. Has anything really changed? Then are the people any different to the ones that got exiled in the first place for doing the same stuff? Is this just repetitive pessimism? This is not the happy ending which I think we think Nehemiah deserved. At best, this is an anticlimax, isn't it? This is how Nehemiah and Ezra end. So... What does it mean for us this morning? Having journeyed through these books together over all these weeks, seen all the highs, all the great promises that were made, and now ending like this, what does it mean for us? And I think there's four implications here that I'd like to discuss with you. Four implications, I think, which continue to have relevance for us. Number one, and I think this is, when I read chapter 13, this is my number one question, can I really change? All right? Can you change? Can you really change? Does becoming one, God's, one of God's people 
actually lead you towards practical, real change in your life? Does it? Big question, isn't it? Well, I think on one level, it's impossible to ignore the rather depressing cycle that we see in the Old Testament. That God raises up someone, the spiritual temperature changes under this leader, people repent and respond and grow close to God, and then that leader passes away or the season ends and the people go back, flip-flop back to what they were before. The Bible is real about this. So the question is, can we really change? Isn't a happy ending actually possible? And the answer is, I'm very thankful that I don't live in the time of Nehemiah. I'm very thankful that I live in a different part of the story of God, as do you. I live in what is called the time of the New Covenant. Or if you've got your Bible open in front of you, the New Testament. Testament and covenant are the same word. In the New Testament. Now, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, who was living hundreds of years before these are what's going on in Nehemiah, Jeremiah was dealing with the same thing. He was living before the exile of God's people, and he just kept looking at them and going, you guys, you're still doing the same thing. God's judgment is coming, but you're not changing. But then there's this wonderful passage in Jeremiah 31, 31, where God by spirit comes to Nehemiah, and this is sorry, to Jeremiah, and this is what Jeremiah says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote it for you. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So I'm gonna, I made that covenant, God's saying, with the people of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. I'm going to make a new one, but it's going to be different. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They'll not teach again each man his neighbour and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, but they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Jeremiah is saying, you see this problem with hearts of stone? Constantly drifting and needing to be taught and instructed, all these sort of things. He's saying there's a time when the new covenant will come, when I'm going to write on their hearts. I'm going to work a change from them within them, not external changes, hope, you know, never really impacting the internal part of us, but internal changes flowing outwards to our lives and our actions. He says that's coming. And, they, and that is here, right? The new covenant, the New Testament is here. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, 12. And likewise, Jesus took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this is in the communion moment, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, I'm bringing the new covenant. The, the writing on your heart's not just on the external tablets of stone, but on internal, in your hearts. Hebrews chapter 9.15 says, Therefore Jesus, 
is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal deliverance. The new covenant, the new covenant um, written and sealed in our heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus comes and he lives his perfect life and he dies on the cross and he's resurrected to new life, God sends the Holy Spirit which dwells in your heart. If you are a Christian here this morning, I don't just mean you're, you're culturally Christian. I mean, if you are a Christian and you have been delivered out of the bondage of sin by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in your heart. God's law is written inside of you. If you are not a Christian, you are still under the old covenant, brother or sister. You're still trying to follow the moral law. You're trying, to, you're trying to do the right thing and you're never changing. You're going round and round in circles because you have no power of God within you because you haven't experienced, you haven't responded to God's work of saving grace in you. But if you're a Christian, you're in the new covenant. Sister, brother, the law's written on your heart. You live in a better time in the story of God than Nehemiah because Jesus has come. You can change. First part. Now the elephant in the room. What's the elephant in the room? You are. Not just you, Sylvan. I am. You are. You are. We're, we're the elephant in the room. What do I mean? We, we are children of the new covenant. God's law is written in our hearts. So what about our lives? I said you could change. Have you changed? Have I changed? How do we explain the fact that, that sometimes Christians live for decades with all sorts of addictions? How do we explain the fact that even though some of us don't have those external addictions that are obviously all you know, bad ticket sin items, how many of us have such cold hearts towards God? How many of us have such unloving attitude towards our neighbours? We're the elephant in the room. 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. So hang on, we can change because we're in the new covenant and yet there is so much that is not right in our life. And we could say, well, Christians in 2022 are the exceptions. If we could just get back to the first early church, we'd discover that, that you know, we're just doing something wrong. We're not filled with the Spirit enough. We're not, something is, is going on. The problem is that when you look at the early church and you read the history of Christianity, you see that we're not the exception. We're the rule. God's people are always, in some sense, the elephants in the room. So how do we explain this? How do we explain that we're not like the Old Testament people of God under the Old Covenant, always just constantly rebelling against God. We're not like that. How do we explain that, that we're not like that? Because Jesus has come under the new covenant and yet we are still very far from who we know we should be. We're still very far from who we would like to be. How do we explain this? We, we need to understand, and, and Nehemiah, I think, pushes us to understand this again, Two truths that are both true at the same time. Number one, the kingdom of God has come. When you read the coming of Jesus, bringing in the new covenant, he talks over and over again about the kingdom of God is here. 
He says like that, the power of God is broken into our world in a real way. It's split open. God comes into our world. And if you're a Christian, God has come into your life in the person of Jesus. You are not the same person anymore. You have power. You have authority over evil. You are delegated by God, spiritual authority, before which the demons in hell shudder and tremble, right? The kingdom of God has come. But the kingdom of God is not yet fully here. There's a tension. The kingdom of God is not yet fully here. You continue to live in a human body that is broken and degrading. We continue to live in a world where there's a lot of problems. More than that, there are internal struggles with sin in your life and mine that will continue. Both of these are true at the same time. The kingdom of God has come and it's coming. It's here, but it's not yet here. So practically, this means two things. Number one, we should not be pessimistic. We should be optimistic. Let me explain. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is living in your heart and in our church by the power of the Holy Spirit. We should expect by faith to see real and genuine concrete changes. And we see it. We see it. We see it in our community of the church. This is one of the privileges I have as as being one of the pastors here. I see it all the time. Real, concrete, life-changing, wonderful, beautiful changes. Spoke to a a girl last week and, uh, and she said like, in January, I wasn't a Christian. I had no idea about God. Now I'm a Christian. I've met Jesus. My life has changed. That's real and that's concrete and it's beautiful. We should be optimistic about God's work in our church and in in your life, right? You should be optimistic that God has the power to change you because he does. You could be optimistic that God is bringing his kingdom more fully in your life every day. We have reasons for optimism because Jesus has come. The kingdom of God is here. But, But we also need to be realistic. Need to be careful of hubris. You know, that, that, I, that, that sort of overweening self-confidence, the idea. I've met Christians that will, will tell me to my face, I never sin anymore. And I'm part of a group of Christians who've discovered the truth that we're completely sinless. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you are. Be careful. That's hubris. As Christians, we're realistic. We know that even in the midst of God's people, the church, that we are just a bunch of people who are still being God's still working on us. There's still sin in our communities. We're aware that sometimes, even in Christian communities, there are terrible things that happen. Horrible things that happen. There are horrible things that continue to happen, perhaps, in, the, in our own lives, right? Not, not here where we can put on, on the nice, smiley faces, but in our own lives, there are things that, are, that, are, that it, we would be terrified to have shone before everybody else in the community. That's realistic, right? We're not pessimistic, but we're realistic. We're aware of that. And if you are a a leader in God's church in any way, and many of us here today are, maybe you're a gospel community leader, or you are leading in some sort of capacity, this is the real story of leadership. Leading while God's kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here, leading in the in-between times means that often, like Nehemiah, you will still be trying to lead and encourage people who 
Uh, uh, they're like, they're a beautiful golden statue with feet of clay. You know, beautiful creations in which God is moving and yet also still corrupted. And if you're a leader, you should expect it because that's the truth of it. If you're not a leader, maybe you don't know that about yourself and about others yet. But if you're a leader in our church, for example, expect leadership of God's people to be hard sometimes. Read Nehemiah chapter 13. Hopefully your leadership will not involve you pulling the hair out of your GC members uh, or beating them publicly. In fact, we, we should have a conversation if you think that that's the application of Nehemiah chapter 13. All right. In fact, come and speak to me afterwards because that is problematic. We're not living in Nehemiah's time. We're in the new covenant. We're under grace. But at the same time, be aware that that is the reality of the, of, of the... That's the water in which we swim at the moment. The kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is here, but it's not yet fully here. So be optimistic, but be realistic. And if you say to me, Andrew, I'm not convinced. I think if we're in the New Testament, that that's not how it was. Read the New Testament. Read the pastoral letters, right? You see the power of God breaking into the world in extraordinary ways. But you also read some of those letters about some of the stuff that's going on in those church communities. And you go like, whoa, we got problems that, oh man, I think they might have had worse problems. That's the first point. So implication one, we can change. But this side of heaven, it will be imperfect. Implication one. Implication two, and this is a really obvious one, I think. You and I need God's help, right? I don't know if you notice, um, if you haven't read the whole chapter, you might not see it. Three times, verses 14, 22, and 31, Nehemiah prays the same prayer. He says, remember me. Remember me, God. Remember me. This is not a prayer because you know, God's suffering from dementia and he's got some sort of amnesia problems and Nehemiah's got to say, hey, remember that. Remember, remember me? Don't forget me. No, no. When, when Nehemiah's playing remember me, what he's saying is bring to mind your promises and the way they worked out in my life. Remember me. Act on my behalf. Nehemiah knows that in, in a such a world as he is and he needs help. Now, we're in a different world to Nehemiah, but we need help. We need to come to God and to ask for his help. We need to say, remember me. Remember me personally. Remember us as a church. It's why we pray together. When we come together, we pray. When we're in our own bedrooms, we pray. God's people pray because we know that we're not yet there and we need help. Remember me. Second implication. Now, thirdly, you, you can't read Nehemiah as a whole and even chapter 13 and go and miss, I think, that God has raised up Nehemiah to be an incredible leader. You can't miss the impact that Nehemiah has. Nehemiah is lifted up by God. He has this vision and he is indomitable in bringing God's vision to God's people. Leadership really matters. Listen to how one commentator describes Nehemiah. He says this, Unlike his contemporaries, he refuses to allow for a moment that holiness is negotiable or that custom alone can hallow anything. He is a man whose private persona is perfectly in line with his public one, single-mindedly, utterly frank, and godly through and through. 
God raises up a leader like Nehemiah to do his will and his work, to change the spiritual temperature. He did it in the time of Nehemiah, and I believe that is still what God does. He raises up leaders, men and women, who are sold out for God and who God uses to change the spiritual temperature around them. Do you know that? So a couple of implications from that. Number one, pray that God would raise up these kind of leaders. Pray that God would be raising up men and women who would be like that in our generation. Pray that God would raise up men and women who are sold out for God. Pray for that. And one of the things as a church, I don't know if you know, but we have a, we have a vision to see next generation ministry, to see the next generation of God's people um, coming to God, being, being raised up, to see these leaders in, in a, a City Kids project or a youth or wherever, to see God working through them. Pray for that. Pray for it. It's going on right now in City Kids. On Friday nights here, you see the place, you know, kids, youth everywhere, Pray that God is raising up those next generations of leaders. Um, it's one of the things I, I pray for a lot because I know you, know you look at leadership capacity, I'm like here, but I'm like, God, you've got people who are out there. You've got people like in history like Wesley and Whitfield and all of these other, Martin Luther, people, Billy Graham, people who God used to, to really bring change. Give us some of those, Lord. Maybe you're, one of the, you are sitting in here right now or listening online. Pray for the next generation of leaders and, and let's invest in those generations of leaders. Let's, let's train them. Did Nehemiah end, you know, did he start like he is now? I doubt it. Nehemiah is, you were seeing here, the end product of a lifetime of faithfulness and growth. So third implication. Fourthly, finally, God's done much more than just raise up leaders for us. He's given us the new covenant and that new covenant comes in the person of Jesus. I don't know if, as you read Nehemiah, if you see the parallels with Jesus, the parallels in chapter 13. Can, I just see him storming into Tobiah's warehouse and chucking stuff out. You know, can you think of a parallel with the Lord Jesus in John? Yeah. Going into the temple with the whip. You know, Jesus may not have pulled people's hairs out, put hair out and, and beat them, but he had a whip and he, he by force overturned that. The zeal for the house of God, the disciples remembered. It was said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed with, with, with God's glory. Nehemiah, God just doesn't raise up for us leaders. He sends us Jesus. And Jesus is a way better Nehemiah because Nehemiah left, didn't he? He left probably when the people needed him most. Not his fault. He got recalled by the king of Persia. He had no choice. But he left the people. Jesus never leaves his people. Even death can't separate him from his people. You remember that wonderful passage in Romans? Height nor depth, nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus now, between his first coming, the, the coming of the kingdom of God and its full coming is working on us. Listen to how Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 5, 26. Jesus is working that he might sanctify her, that's his church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
When we read Nehemiah and we think of the old covenant and we think about the new covenant, we have to center our thoughts on Jesus Christ, the one who brings the new covenant, the one who is working in his church. And this is where I'm going to end. And that's like thinking about what, what the ending looks like, right? What does is, what is the ending look like? Is the ending of God's story the Bible? Is it, is it an anticlimax? Is it, is it a sad ending? Is it a happy ending? Well, actually, it's none of those things. It's not an anticlimax. It's not a sad ending. It's not even a happy ending. I'll tell you why. Because it's not an ending, it's a beginning. We're in the in-between times right now. The times between Jesus' first coming and his second. But there will come a time when Jesus comes again, when the ending is, is not just happy, that falls short, because it's, it's not an ending, it's a new beginning. I'm going to close by paraphrasing how, what C.S. Lewis described it as. Maybe you've heard it, it's, it's beautiful. It's in the ending of one of the Narnia books. It says this, I think it's the last battle. Here and now is just the cover and the title page. But on the day when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, the first chapter of the real story will begin. The story that will never end. The story in which every page is better than the one before. The story that never ends. So we pray with Nehemiah, I think, although he didn't have the words for it, but we pray with him. Maranatha, you know what that means? Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. To the point when we can really, truly change. When God's people, the elephant in the room is gone and we are who we are meant to be and will be for all eternity. And when we send her not on a great leader like Nehemiah, but on Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. So I'm going to pray for that. Musicians are going to come up. And we're going to, as we sing a couple of beautiful songs that center us on that reality, I'm going to ask that our hearts would be touched by that truth. So let's pray. Father, um, we come to you this morning and we thank, look, first we want to thank you for Nehemiah. This guy was amazing. Uh, you raised him up to be a leader who transformed his generation, a leader who was used by you to change the temperature. But we thank you, Lord, um, that we're not looking backwards at Nehemiah and going, I wish he was here again. We're looking in the present and we're looking into the future and we're gazing at the face of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that for those of us who are frustrated with ourselves, we're frustrated with the state of God's church, with the compromise we see and the, and the slipping into the culture around us. Father, we pray that in the name of Jesus, you'd send your fire. That, that you would help us to, to see that reality and be dissatisfied with it, to recognise it, but not to become pessimistic and full of despair. And Lord, we also pray for those of us who are naive, those of us who think that Christians are just good people and, and, and nothing's ever going to change that. Lord, help those of us to see the reality that, that we're works in progress and that we need to be vigilant. And Father, would you remind all of us of the Lord Jesus. And as we sing to Him now and as we encourage one another now in this holy faith once delivered to us, would you feed us, Lord Jesus, and strengthen us because we, we come to you and we ask it in total dependence. Remember us, Lord. Remember us for good, Lord. Remember your people. 
And we ask it knowing that the answer is yes, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.